Hello, and welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on September 23rd, titled, Are You Subject to EU Mandatory Reporting, DAC 6? The panelists for the webcast were Chris Kong, PwC's Asia-Pacific America's Tax and Global Tax Reporting Strategy Leader, Astrid Bauer, PwC's EMEA and Global Tax and Legal Regulatory Leader, Martin Mascant, PwC's International Tax Desk Leader, Adriana Rodriguez, PwC Mexico Tax Reporting and Strategy Leader, and Justin Femmer, PwC's Tax Reporting and Strategy Data Automation Co-Leader. This podcast features a discussion of EU Mandatory Reporting, or DAC 6, including an overview, the COVID-19 impact, implementation, why it concerns non-EU companies, as well as what arrangements need to be reported. This podcast also focuses on broader topics and preparedness for global mandatory disclosure rules. Have a listen. Hello, and welcome to our PwC Tax Readiness webcast. Today's topic is are you subject to EU mandatory reporting, DAC 6? My name is Chris Kong, and I'll be your moderator for today's webcast. Today's webcast, of course, is uh, going to cover broader topics and preparedness for global mandatory disclosure rules, um, of course, including DAC 6, but we're going to comment as well uh, outside the, the European Union. Um, Today, um, I wanted to introduce our, our great group of uh, speakers. Uh, again, my name is Chris Kong, and I lead our global tax reporting and strategy practice for PwC. Joining me today is Astrid Bauer, our EMEAN global tax and legal regulatory leader, Martin Mascon, uh, our international tax desk leader for our, um, uh, in New York, Adriana Rodriguez, our Mexican tax reporting and strategy leader, and Justin Femmer, partner and tax reporting strategy data automation co-leader in in the U.S. So to kick us off, I'd like to maybe throw a first question to Astrid. Astrid, uh, you know, you're a partner in our our German firm, and I know you're involved uh, a lot with DAC6. Can you share any experiences from the last few weeks, particularly since Germany is one of the first two countries that has an ongoing reporting at this moment? Astrid. Thanks, Chris. Well, we will come to the details a little later, but the experience has really been intense. You know, Germany has been one of the territories promoting the deferral on an EU level, so on the European Union level, and all signs were aiming at postponement of the reporting timeline. When finally our Minister of Finance declared the original timeline to be valid, it was already one week after the start of the original timeline and in the middle of the German summer holiday period. In this situation, we recognized several points, actually. We recognized first that people were not equally prepared to report on the retrospect cases. Second, we noticed that people found it very difficult to determine reporting cases at all, Third, we had to take risk decisions on questions that were still unclear, e.g. regarding the use of confidentiality clauses. 
where we use confidentiality clauses in Germany, uh, in the profession and in Germany, we had received ambiguous statements on the question whether they would trigger a reporting under Hallmark A1. And we come to this a bit later. But what we did is we identified the clients to whom we had provided services since June 2018 and um, allowed them, subject to certain conditions, to use our deliverables more freely as regards intermediaries. And this means we had to address more than 20,000 clients in the end. This is pretty complex. This is a lot. And those were the challenges we faced. But we also found out that we were right in our education efforts and the development of technological solutions to help the approach. So a mixed experience, some very challenging uh, weeks, but also some rewarding moments. Astrid, thank you very much. It's a nice lead-in to our next topic about understanding what the European DAC 6 rules are. And I'm going to ask Astrid uh, to also take up the, the next uh, part of this section along with Martin to, to discuss what is DAC 6. Uh, thank you again, Chris. Thank you so much. I found it specifically interesting to see that for, that uh, at least 32% uh, uh, say it is not applicable or a PwC uh, participant. Maybe after what we tell you, you will find out there is more that may be applicable to uh, to all of you. So let me take a step back before I turn to the directive as such. The sixth version of the EU directive on administrative cooperation, in short, DAC 6, aims to provide member states and tax authorities with additional information in order to assist them to more rapidly close perceived loopholes in tax legislation and harmful tax practices. So in the end, the EU Commission has undertaken a big step towards tax transparency and about fostering what the EU believes to be the right thing, being fair to all taxpayers and achieving fairness among taxpayers. And this led to DAC 6, a directive concerned with the notification of certain tax arrangements. As a consequence, it is also about all of us, you know, intermediaries and taxpayers doing the right thing in our compliance efforts. First and foremost, as regards DAC 6, but also in general, relating to all our future efforts. So in the quest for transparency and the fight against aggressive tax planning, the regulator has come up with some fairly far-reaching measures. Those measures concern, and this is very important to note, completely legal transactions. Transactions even that are foreseen in your national laws, in all of our national laws. And this is one of the transformations the regulator foresees for all of us. While confidentiality and discretion plays a big role in professional engagements, the regulator has at least partly turned this upside down. Transparency is the new normal in the tax compliance world. This said, let us turn to the scope that you see on this slide, the scope of the DAC 6 directive. And please bear in mind when I, when I do so that in the end, the national transposition of the rules prevail. And it is just for the ease of reference that I refer to the directive as such. So I already said DAC 6 is about arrangements. But um, interestingly enough, tax arrangements is not defined in the directive and it is not defined in most of the national transpositions. Um, so this is the first interpretation issue that we all face. 
and the arrangements need to concern either one or more, uh, one member state or a member state and a third country. It may therefore happen that only EU companies are involved, but DAC 6 is also open to scenarios between EU companies and companies in third countries. And the third country in this regard could also be the US. So therefore, the uh, directive and the transposition laws may be relevant also for companies with headquarters outside the EU. And we come to this a bit later in more detail when Martin Klug takes over. Second, and this is also very important, and it's a difference to what we've seen in the past, DAC 6 is about taxpayers, individual businesses, specifically on direct taxes, unless the uh, national transposition law also includes other taxes like indirect taxes. The consequence for you to understand is if a territory goes beyond the direct tax uh, provision, it, the, the taxes they include will not participate in the automatic exchange of information. This is the difference between what the territory is foresee or what comes from the directive. And next, it's about intermediaries. And intermediaries could be PwC as tax advisors, but also in the other service lines, like advisory uh, efforts could fall under this, partly assurance efforts or uh, other strategic advice. And not only PwC, but also financial advisors and banks could be covered. And this tells you that the directive does not aim at a specific profession, but it is action-based. And I, I have highlighted this on the slide because it's so important. I think we all have seen uh, regulation that goes uh, towards certain professions, but this is action-based, strictly action-based. So if you perform an action, you are covered, you are in, and if you don't, you are out. There is no de minimis threshold and no exemption for certain professions. But, and this is also important to note, there is a certain privilege as far as reporting is concerned. So usually the reporting is on the intermediary, unless the intermediary is under a nationally accepted professional privilege, or if you don't have an intermediary because you have an advisor outside the EU, it jumps to the taxpayer, again, a sign for transparency. So next, you will remember that I mentioned at the beginning that DAC6 is a result of the fight against aggressive tax planning. But interestingly enough, again, there is no definition what aggressive tax planning is, but instead the regulator uses hallmarks as indicators. And here we have specific hallmarks. If you fulfill them, you have to report. And you have general hallmarks that need a main benefit test. And if one of the main benefits of the transaction is a tax benefit, you will have to report. And I mentioned with the first question that Chris directed to me, the confidentiality clauses that are put in Hallmark A1. This is one of the general ones, but it is so general and so broad that um, also if you use NDAs in the normal course of business, it may be that this triggers a reporting. As I said, it is completely legal, but it triggers a reporting because the regulator wants to know. Last not least, I want to mention sanctions, which differ in this uh, from about 5,000 euros per breach to several millions in case of a breach. 
But no matter how high the sanctions, we, we all will always have to bear in mind that our reputation may be even more on stake here. And this is, for all of us, I believe, an invaluable asset. So if you ask me today what I expect the future to look like, and without having a crystal ball for reference, I would say there is more to come and compliance is no longer a necessity, but can be a strategic driver for our companies. The same can be said for transparency. So I think that six compliance and other compliance can well be a starting point for seeing transparency as a strategic advantage for all of the companies that are currently on the call. With this said, I would like to turn to the next slide. And I mentioned this at the beginning as well, the COVID-19 impact. I hope that all of you are healthy, that your families are and that your colleagues are. This is certainly an effect that has, um, that has uh, triggered and affected the world that was unforeseen and that the EU regulator uh, noticed as well. So what, it, what the regulator did is they decided to defer the reporting deadline. But as the uh, DAC6 directive is a directive and needs to be transposed, the EU can only suggest a deferral. The original timeline was for all cases from the um, entry into force of the directive till the uh, 1st of July, uh, the reporting would end, would have to end on the 31st of August. And everything else starting from the 1st of July 2020 would have to be reported within 30 days. Um, the deferral gives you an option, the member states an option to defer for six months. It can be three months, but it shouldn't be more than six months. And if we now turn to the um, implementation uh, slide, we see that apart from Germany and, um, and Finland, and uh, a de facto declaration of uh, Austria, we have everybody picking up the deferral with the exception of Poland. And Poland is a complete exception because they went for reporting already in 2019. So for far before anybody else did. And what does this mean for you? It means that if you are uh, based in a company potentially headquartered in the US, but with affiliates in the EU, you currently, until everybody reports, face a piecemeal approach because some have gone for the uh, reporting already and some haven't. And what this means for you and how you can prepare yourself for whatever comes in 2021 is something that I would like to um, hand over to Martin, who will go into much more detail on what is in for the U.S., what does it need to be prepared for it, and what are the first experiences potentially that we have made already. Martin, over to you. Yes, thank you, Astrid, and hello, everyone. So, why is it so important for non-European companies? The directive is applicable, as Esther explained, to cross-border arrangements between associated enterprises, regardless where their headquarters is. So, as soon as there is a European link, and it could be an economic, just an economic activity in Europe, you could be subject to these rules. That also means that a reporting obligation may exist for the company, or at least 
regarding the activities and the transactions undertaken by the company. Um, and as explained, the primary reporting obligation lies with an intermediary, if an intermediary is involved, but there are circumstances when not the intermediary, but the company itself needs to report. Uh, for instance, the intermediary is now European Nexus or the already mentioned legal privilege. In those circumstances, the reporting obligation shifts to the company, not the headquarter, but the relevant European group company. What is important or a crucial element is, is the cross-border arrangement, the undefined cross-border arrangement, but in transaction between more than one jurisdiction. Um, it could be two European member states or a third state. And it is even important to understand that it's not even necessary that the level of activity in Europe rises to the level of a permanent establishment. So even without a taxable presence, undertaken a, a, an economic activity that really could, could lead to being a scope of the rules. Having said that, um, how materials relevant of a jurisdiction should be for an arrangement to be considered cross-border is not defined and may vary per member state. And, and you will hear that saying more often than by my co-speakers, um, the directive is guidance, but you really need to check on a country-by-country -country basis what the law says. Turning uh, what I just said the other way around, um, domestic transactions are not in scope of the directive, but some jurisdictions have extended the scope, so like Portugal and Poland did. But let me give you a few examples on transactions that could be considered cross-border where at least I was surprised when, when I read it. If you think about, let's take a Dutch company uh, which has a German sister company and both companies legally merge. Uh, either into the German or, or into the, the Dutch entity, we can all see that that's a cross-border transaction. But what did the Dutch government um, say in their guidance is that even a legal merger between two Dutch sister entities, which you could think that's just a domestic transaction, could be considered cross-border if the, Dutch, the two Dutch entities are owned by a non-Dutch entity. So let's say I have a UK shareholder owning two Dutch entities and we just simply merge two Dutch entities. That transaction is considered to be cross-border because the shareholder is deemed to receive shares in the surviving company. So cross-border, and we will see that with the hallmarks, um, there are transactions that, that you really have to analyze in detail against the domestic law, because they, there could be much more transactions in scope than we have seen, than you may think reading the language. Another example I came across when analyzing transactions for companies is, for instance, the transfer of intellectual property between two non-European jurisdictions. Um, and say, okay, when I transfer IP from Cayman to Switzerland, that doesn't involve a European jurisdiction, but what if that transaction will lead to a non-resident capital gains tax in one of the European uh, company, uh, jurisdictions or even a patent or trademark registration tax? There could be arguments then by those countries, no, it is cross-border and it involves my country because apparently 
ERP is exploited in my territory, hence the, the taxation, or the assignment or the transfer of the of the IP will lead to assignment of license agreements. And those license agreements, you know, on the assignment, they're updated, renewed. Um, then a uh, jurisdiction could say, I regard it as a new transaction, simply just a amendment of the name, perhaps not. But what if there is an active involvement needed by one of the jurisdictions in the assignment of the contract? That may constitute already a cross-border element involving a European jurisdiction. So it is really all about transactions that touches one way or the other, European jurisdiction, you really have to go go into, into detail. That brings me to the next slide, the hallmarks. So what arrangements need to be reported, they need to be cross-border, they need to be some European nexus, and they need to meet one of the so-called hallmarks. Only if those three are met, you will have reportable cross-border arrangement. The hallmarks are they're around, they're divided in, in five buckets and, and you have around 18 hallmarks in total. Half of the hallmarks, and you can see that in that lit, little red box uh, under A, B, and, and partly C, are linked to a what they call a main benefit test. Um, meaning that even if you are meeting the, the language of the hallmark, you only have to report if you meet the main benefit test. And the main benefit test, it will be satisfied if it can be established that the main benefit or one of the main benefits have regard to relevant facts and circumstances, a person may reasonably expect to, to derive from an arrangement if you obtain a tax advantage. In other words, if the transaction um, whereby a tax is one of the drivers, only then it's reportable. Now, the hallmarks award is very broad, and, and I, we have in the appendix, there's a slide with details on the hallmarks. I all invite you to read them through uh, carefully, and then you will see how many transactions will be covered. Thank you, Martin. And uh, as as our, our viewers um, will will probably now appreciate, very complex, lots of considerations, and anytime, of course, you involve cross border, that is the case. So, I'd like to turn the next question to Adriana and ask Adriana, are you aware? Are there any other countries in the Americas that are considering a DAC6-like regime? I know you're going to be talking about one in particular, Mexico, so I'll, I'll, but, but just thoughts on any others that might be coming. Thank you, Chris, and hi, everyone. True. I mean, Mexico introduced last year um, a DAC6-type reportable transaction rule, and I'll describe in more detail uh, those rules, but apart from Mexico, uh, we see the same trend in Latin America, particularly Brazil. Brazil is working precisely on, on having that, and we know that generally Mexico and Brazil, they go pretty close together in terms of enacting rules aimed to increase transparency, obviously because of all other things that happen in Latin America, other type of problems like corruption and all that, but Mexico and Brazil are always kind of the ones leading the other countries. But then what we also see is when something is implemented or introduced in either of those two countries, Mexico or Brazil, we see that other countries such as Chile, Peru, Colombia, they follow the trend. And that is very clear, for example, 
in the specific uh, rules that we introduced in Mexico some years ago in terms of um, introducing technology, the tax authorities introducing technology on invoices and, and all that. Now, we see Chile doing the same thing in Colombia and Peru is also going through that path. So at the end, what we're seeing is Mexico is already having those rules, but we will see other countries in Latin America following that trend, apart from Brazil, which is also already in that process. So the answer is, I guess, more transparency to come everywhere. Yes, and, and thank you, um, Adriana. Why don't we move on to the topic of Mexico reportable transactions, Adriana, and uh, and let's hear further. Please give us that update. Sure, thank you. And it may be a lot of information for this short period, but um, just bear with me. <laughs> so as said, there is more transparency to come, and we've seen a lot of rules being introduced by Mexico over the last couple of years, all of them towards increasing transparency and some scrutiny on on certain transactions that may not have a very strong business reason. So in terms of reportable transactions, Mexico just introduced, um, joining the efforts of other countries, introduced uh, and enacted this past January a new rule requiring tax advisors to disclose to the Mexican tax authorities certain transactions to the extent there is a tax benefit in Mexico and regardless of the residence of the taxpayer materializing the benefit. So in exploring the concept of reportable transactions, among the various concepts and provisions, there are three very relevant that, that we will address today. Number one, what is a reportable transaction? Number two, what should be considered as a tax advisor? And three, timing of reporting. Uh, so the term transaction should include, among others, any plan, project, advice, or even recommendations provided with the objective to actually materialize a series of legal acts. And keep in mind that there is a list of 14 transactions considered as reportable introduced in the law itself. So they should be the starting point of analysis. But for a transaction to be reportable, there should be a tax benefit. And a tax benefit is considered to be any monetary value of any reduction, elimination, or deferral of a tax. So this is not just elimination or reduction. A deferral of a tax will be considered a tax benefit according to these, these rules related to reportable transactions. A tax advisor. Tax advisor is considered to be any individual or entity that provides advice and is responsible or involved in the design, organization, or implementation of the reportable transaction, or that makes such reportable transaction available to be implemented by a third party. And this is similar to what Astrid was explaining in terms of tax six is action-based, similar to that is It's not necessarily based on a specific um, profession. So 
with this description, a tax advisor under these regulations can be the tax director of a company. And the, the law doesn't necessarily the concept of tax advisor to be a third party. An in-house person can also be considered a tax advisor. And this, why is this relevant? It is relevant because of the penalties that are imposed to tax advisors, as I will describe later. But um, if an in-house person is considered to be a tax advisor, such person can be relieved of that by the company itself so that the company takes that burden instead of the, of the advisor, the individual. Um, and finally, timing of reporting. Beginning January 1st, 2021, disclosure of reportable transactions is required for those designed or implemented from 2020 onwards. So just to be clear, right now in 2020, we are not yet reporting. The reporting obligation will start January 1st, 2021 for those designed or implemented in 2020 and onwards. But those designed or implemented before 2020 must also be disclosed if the benefit is materialized in 2020 or later. So for example, if an organization was implemented in 2018, which, um, among other implications, gave rise to the elimination of withholding tax on dividends, it may well be that such reorganization may end up being a reportable transaction. And why? Well, the analysis, obviously, we, need, we would need to do, but if it is elimination of withholding tax and on dividends, and dividends are being paid constantly over you know, the following years, then the benefit didn't um, materialize in the past. It may be 2020 and onwards. So it may be a reportable transaction. So it's very important to, to not necessarily just look at what we did in 2020, but we need to analyze what was implemented and done in prior years and whether those structures or transactions implemented in the past have still consequences in 2020 and onwards. Uh, so to summarize, a transaction will be reportable when there is a tax benefit in Mexico and such transaction falls into at least one of the 14 listed categories in the law which is not, by the way, which is not, not only includes cross-border transactions. In, that may be a difference, although not necessarily such a difference with that six. The reportable transactions in Mexico not only include cross-border transactions. There are some domestic transactions that are included in these 14 listed categories that will be also considered reportable transactions. Um, in terms of penalties, non-compliance of reporting obligations will trigger severe penalties, which could go as high as 50 to 70% of the tax benefit that was obtained during the entire period 
for example, in my in my other example, if we um, implemented a structure back in 2018, but we concluded that it was not reportable or we just failed to report it, and then the tax authorities show up and they assess in 2025, the penalty would go from 50 to 70% of the entire benefit, the entire tax being reduced or tax being eliminated from 2018 to 2025. And on top of that uh, penalty, there is an additional one imposed to the tax advisor failing to disclose, which is around 20 million Mexican pesos. And that's why my reference to, to my previous comment when a tax advisor is considered to be an in-house person. This additional penalty that I'm just describing um, could be imposed to that individual. So if we want to you know, leave the individual kind of clean of any responsibility, the company itself can take that responsibility instead of the individual. Um, as, as this is what I just explained, this is what we have currently in the rules, the rules that are effective and available now. But we expect to have new rules being issued before year end because there is still some guidance needed. And one of the most important things, for example, that we don't yet have is the, the reporting itself. What is the, the report? the form that how it would look like. We know the guidance that was um, included in the laws, but we don't yet have the, the, the report itself. So the expectation is that within the next following months, we will be getting additional rules and guidance from the tax authorities so that we can start with the reporting obligation January 1st, 2021. And just as a final comment, keep in mind that it's not just reporting a transaction. The, the mere fact or the mere, um, you know, disclose of the transaction. What is important also is the impact and implications that reporting will have with the tax authorities. So with that, Chris, I leave it to you again. Thank you, Adriana. That's very, very helpful. And uh, I guess the theme is stay tuned. Uh, so we, we will pay attention to that. I want to move on next to, um, you know, we have to get this reporting done. And, and so how do you go about this practically? What are some of the considerations, especially on a data and automation um, um, consideration? So I'm going to ask Justin to kind of take this next section and lead us through that discussion. Justin. All right, thanks, Chris, and uh, happy to be here with uh, with everyone today. So, if we if we start with the assumption that companies will want to comply with X six, and, and we'll get into a little bit some of the practical considerations, and you know, how do you evaluate, you know, whether this is material and part of your risk strategy, et cetera. We'll kind of get that in the next slide, but if we start with the the the, pre the presumption that you know companies want to comply. You know, this is a framework that you know, can really be applied for a number of processes, um, but but certainly as it relates to DAC 6. And the first one is, um, you know, working it formally into your, your strategy and policies. Um, likely there uh, in most of the, the companies we work with, the tax part of the tax function charter is to protect the business from risk of, you know, penalty, reputation, 
reputational risk, et cetera, you know, and this certainly can fit in that vein. And, and as part of that, update policies and procedures as necessary. The next is you know, making sure that the risk and control framework around this to execute is consistent with how it's been evaluated in strategy and policies. And so I, I would say it's, it's, it's certainly not always the case that you know, a tax function or you know, a broader finance function you know, says something in the strategy about something being important or you know, being something that needs to be complied with. But then when you actually drill down into the governance that it's actually not well documented, defined, or you know, isn't really robust enough to, to be equivalent to how, how the risk was assessed by the company. And so I think this is, you know, certainly an opportunity um, to, to do so. And, and in some ways, it's more complicated than, than other, you know, tax reporting you know, processes. So, for example, you know, there, there's a number of different data sources in terms of how you identify um, the different arrangements and need to report on a monthly basis. This is not just a pull from you know, ERP systems or something like that with, with some tax logic applied to it. There's also a number of different stakeholders um, that may be able to source the information and you know, you know, particularly up in the supply chain. And so for some of those reasons, it's just going to be very, very important to, to, to well document the who and, and the when and, and how these things are being identified throughout the process. And particularly given the 30-day timeline, which will kick in in a few months, again, if things stay on schedule, you know, this is not something that can be done just annually, um, where you then go interview a bunch of stakeholders and make sure you get all the information together. It really is going to um, require a well-oiled um, governance process around this. So then after we've got the ideas around governance, we think about how do I actually make sure I've got good process and design to be as efficient and effective as possible. And, and so... Normally, when we talk about you know, efficiency of process, you know, the, the, the primary benefit is I want to spend less time. I want to do this at less cost. Um, and in this case, given it is a 30-day, a you know, basically monthly process, obviously any of the benefits that you'd get in terms of automation um, you know, would, would have a multiplier effect as you do it several times throughout the year and, and, and definitely get the benefit. So I'd say from, from one aspect, um, there's, there's a lot of tools that we expect most companies either have somewhere in their ecosystem or, or, or a lot of our companies are exploring it, um, particularly a lot of the merging technologies that we've seen being applied across the board into different tax function processes that can really help streamline the sourcing of data, applying some of the anomaly detection and flags around you know, transactions that happen or new suppliers or, or things that would you know, pop up in different systems. And we think there's a lot of opportunity just around the, the data extraction and the identification of transactions throughout the year. And then further, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later on in the discussion, so I won't get too much. There, there are actually some new technologies just specific around you know, DAX6 reporting that, that could come into play. But getting an efficient process is going to be really important, obviously, because this is something that happens monthly. And, and not just, if, you know, aside from the benefit of doing it at less cost, less time, um, and given you know, most companies and departments have limited resources, you know, the more that can be automated, the more the more that we can look at, um, you know, during the actual period, um, you know, the less we're doing manually, you know, generally the less risk. So a lot of benefits on doing that. And then the last one I'll just, just flag on here is, you know, it's one thing to do an actual, you know, the process monthly. It's another thing to have good good monitoring around this. And I'd say we're seeing a lot of companies not just develop this type of framework in the context of DAC 6, but really looking at this in combination with a number of 
transparency initiatives as well as other just transactional tax initiatives like looking at the the governance around transfer pricing and monitoring of that and making sure you're you're, you're compliant with you know target ratios you know with other initiatives like you know proposals around public CBCR and you know total tax contribution being being disclosed in a more public forum um, you know the the governance and, and those types of things and and how you would generally monitor that and get the data to do that and make sure you're being compliant or within target target ranges. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring sort of a holistic approach on this. So while this may look overwhelming just in the context of, hey, this is just for DAC6 reporting, what we're seeing and advising a lot of our clients to do is really consider it more holistically with, with all the different transparency trends, initiatives, and, and probably other supply chain related taxes. So I said we'd, we'd, we'd bring this to a practical lens. So, you know, we talked about a framework, um, you know, in an ideal state, all the different kind of components of it previously. But now we get into actually executing on this. And, and it's been really, I think, you know, it's, it's important to note when we talk about, you know, the governance and risk and control that a company does actually assess what this means um, reputationally and from a penalty perspective and how that fits in with the company's risk appetite. Um, if this is viewed as a very low risk and, and you know, very, um, you know, immaterial uh, potential, you know, financial penalty impact or, you know, reputational impact, then, then maybe it's going to be more difficult to make a business case to establish and implement the type of you know governance framework we talked about on the last slide. Maybe it's, maybe it's going to be something that that gets executed without you know a ton of uh, support for you know investing in technology and those types of things. But again, I think we've seen a lot of companies that are are bringing this into the more holistic discussion and evaluation around transparency reporting more broadly. Um, and, and when doing that, we're seeing a lot of tax leaders as well as CFOs have, have support for, you know, establishing the right types of controls and things and actually including this as, as something that, that should, be, should be properly addressed. So, again, recommend as a, as a step really doing that technical assessment, um, considering all your different internal and external stakeholders and making sure that you've thought that through. And then that will then drive, you know, how you then go about stepping up and establishing, you know, the next few things. Next thing would be, you know, really establishing that governance risk and control framework. I think we laid out in, in a little bit of, of detail on the prior slide some of the things that might consider and talk to. Um, but again, I would just say here that there, we, we definitely do see a mismatch sometimes when companies put something as a high priority in terms of a strategy and, and a, you know, a, um, you know, in the in the risk category, but not always translating that into what we'd consider. Or, uh, you know, an appropriate or, or, or comprehensive, you know, governance framework. So this is, and I'll just keep repeating the drum. This is one of, you know, a, a number of um, reportable transactions. And again, I think the, the, the key is really evaluating it in the context of, of all the other transactions and, and reporting responsibilities that you have and, and, and really looking at this to making sure that we're thinking about who the different stakeholders along the way, how we ensure um, that, that we're being compliant, we're not missing something reportable, and ultimately that we're getting through in an efficient way. And then the third pillar, um, technology. So again, I, I think um, there, there's a, a huge opportunity to leverage, not just new tools, but, but again, a lot of the tools that we've seen be introduced into tax functions over the last two to three years um, play a major role in this. And um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it in the pursuant slides. Um, about some of the actual technology stacks and tools specifically for, for DAC6. But again, I think executing on the controls and, and risk framework that you would be establishing 
you would certainly want to look to technology to help execute that so that these are not just a bunch of manual checks and controls. And so that you're, you're actually able to look at things in, in a much more real-time way, leveraging the, the, the power of uh, you know, some of the tools that you have. Justin, thank you very much. It's a, a terrific uh, conversation. I know you could talk hours more about it, um, perhaps maybe the subject of a future webcast. Um, we've been getting some questions, and I'm going to try to maybe get to one or two of them right now. Um, maybe direct this to Martin. Martin, does the existence of cross-border intercompany transfer pricing agreements or cross-border intercompany loans create a reporting requirement? You might also want to talk about interest payments and as well where they're automatically renewing arrangements done prior to the imposition of the, of the rules. Thanks, Chris. Great questions indeed. Um, ex existing arrangements, existing prior to the rules becoming effective in June 2018, are not reportable. It is reporting occurs or need, need, need to be looked at upon uh, when a new arrangement, a change in legal facts and circumstances, um, first of implementation takes place or is ready for implementation or is advisable. So something which is existing and you just make a normal interest payment or royalty payment, that's not a reportable transaction. It's when a new arrangement um, uh, occurs. A new arrangement uh, to, to go into your second question, what if I have an existing request uh, arrangement that's automatically renewed? That could be in scope. And I think you need to test it at local law whether a renewable arrangement is considered every time a new arrangement, then that could be in scope of DAC 6. Um, amendments to existing arrangements, be careful whether or not how substantial the change is, I would say, but it needs to be tested per country. So existing arrangements prior to the effective rules, I would say outside of scope, but amendments or renew, uh, automatically renewing, you have to be mindful and check it. With that, back to you, Chris. Thank you, Martin. Um, your answer is uh, certainly very, very practical. But let me uh, let me maybe now take it to looking ahead, speaking of practical, looking ahead and, and uh, sort of implementing this on a compliance basis. Uh, back over to you, Martin, on challenges and, uh, and what you're seeing. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so we discussed the rules of the mandatory reporting in Europe and Mexico, and, and we may see other countries come in. Justin just discussed how to fit it in our broader tax policy uh, risk control framework, but how are you making sure you are compliant? And some of the key challenges we see and, and it's more my daily bread and butter now is I'll just give you a couple of examples. So who is responsible? And and and, and that's important because you want to be uh, have somebody taking ownership of this and be able and make sure you avoid missing reportable transactions. And, um, and second big challenge is, OK, how are we going to uh, make sure that we are uh, reporting right information or that we are control what is reported. So what's reported by intermediaries that comes down to, of course, the great client service you will receive by intermediaries in the interaction. But for in case the company has an um, uh, reporting obligation, you want to make sure that uh, you want to face uh, address the questions is how are we going to organize collection of information um, by who, who are we going to analyze it, who's making the decision uh, in the actual reporting. And all this needs to be done in 30 days. 
which is quite a challenge. Um, other question, other challenge companies are facing, and, and Justin already mentioned it, and Astrid will go into more detail, is what automation will I use? And, and, and um, then the final challenge we need to face is, how do you stay current on development of existing law development in other countries at, which implement similar rules, but again, made sli maybe slightly different? So these are challenges that we need to answer in what I call in our next slide, um, what's the roadmap to be DEC 6 compliant or uh, NDR compliant to, to make it broader than only, uh, only Europe? I would, I typically advise to, to, to start with what we call an impact assessment. And what do I mean with that? The, if I, in Europe, the rules became effective in June, 2018, you have an interim period until this year, and all those transactions where the first step of implementation took place in that period need to be reported. Uh, countries who opted for deferral, it's early next year. So you need to analyze anyway transaction in that interim period. And But looking at that interim period, that assessment may teach you a great view about your DEX6 profile, like, how many recurring transactions do I have per year? Because if I've only had two, okay, how much effort do I need to put in to be in technology? Or can we capture it in another way using existing uh, tools? Uh, which people, internal and external, are involved with the transactions? Uh, where do I get my data? And how often do I speak with the relevant departments? Um, which, who are the service providers uh, involved with the transactions? Um, What's the current state of communication already internally and externally? All this information can help identify you if you need a separate policy or you can add it to a more or less existing policy. Um, what procedures need to be further aligned and improved? And it may also tell you if you have a need for technology as already mentioned. Um, those are um, really important uh, uh, steps, uh, steps to take in step four on this slide. Uh, so in step one was the impact assessment, step two, step three are the DEC6 uh, uh, risk management control system and the processes we, we just talked about. Step four, I want to spend some time on is the ongoing compliance, but including training and monitoring. Because training, you can say, should really start in, in phase one. And that's the question I get a lot is, how do I, and what kind of training do I need? Because staff across the businesses need to understand the DEC6 requirements and hallmarks, and they need to be able to identify the reportable transactions and be able to disclose those correctly. And there are generally concerns about the risk of getting this wrong and how people will stay on top of the rules as they emerge. So I typically propose three levels of training. Uh, what we can call foundation, intermediate, and advanced level. And the foundation is, I think, something you want to do organization-wide, or at least for, uh, for, for all typical departments like legal, HR, finance, treasury, and perhaps the, the business people in, in, in the countries where the rules. With the objective to create at least awareness, um, and you can do that through webcast, you can record it for, 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 for new joiners. And then the second level is more the intermediate level. Those are the people 
more in the uh, like controllers, European controllers, and enable them to recognize DEXIX transactions and, and, be, and enable them to communicate and report them timely to the, what we call the champions or the, the responsible people. Um, so that brings me to the third level, the advanced level. Those are typically the, the, the people in the project team and, and most often those are the text people. And that is an, an, an level of extensive knowledge uh, of the X6 and, and, and MDR rules in other countries and enable to make informed decisions and enable them to implement processes and policies uh, and, and uh, to make sure um, you are compliant with the um, rules. Um, and then the final step is the monitoring and constant improvement of all the processes and procedures staying up to date on developments. Um, I think a crucial element of that, uh, and then I will uh, ask it over to you to, to touch upon tooling you can, uh, yeah, that can support you in the in the in the reporting. Faster, uh, you might uh, just a comment on on Dark Six tools. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was so quiet that I wanted to stay quiet. Um, we hear very much about technology when it comes to transformation. Transformation, very often companies looking into the future say, we need to be technology savvy to transform ourselves. Less likely is it that companies look at transformation when it comes to regulation. But I think we have learned during the uh, during this webcast that uh, regulation may, need, may lead to transformation as well. And where we have found out at PwC and we have taken all our accumulated experience in the strength of our network together is that we said all our experience doesn't help us without the right technology. So what we started to develop is something for our own compliance, first of all. But then very, very uh, early on, we found out that our clients, that means all of you, need help as well. So uh, we also developed uh, tools, and we have here on the slide the smart reporting tool and the compare tool to also help our clients. The smart thing with regard to the Duck 6 smart reporting tool is the assessment capability and the, uh, the um, possibility to adapt it to certain uh, territories. Because you will remember that I said at the beginning, because of the transposition of the directive, you have different laws in different territories. So you get questions from the territories that you need to potentially report on. And this is really pretty smart because usually the uh, systems that we have nowadays are not directed towards it. So it is a it is a further development of the technology experience we've had before, and um, this has really caused a very positive echo also on the market by our clients who say, you know, I feel helped by this. I feel helped not only by the advice, but now I can deal with this on a technology basis. The second is the Duck Six Compare tool, because what we've told you today sounds very very complex. And indeed it is, so it is uh, easier for everybody if you have a visual comparison of everything. 
the DAC6 compared to is such a tool. And the important thing to note is that internally at PwC, we use this tool as well for the education of our people. So what is best for us is also best for uh, for our clients. So we use it there in case you want an easy, easy visualization to say where, where do others stand easily updated to use it. This is only a very, very brief reference on something that has taken us quite a long time, and we are already working on the second version of the smart reporting tool uh, to uh, enable even more features to be included in this. But what it has proven to us all is that uh, technology also for, uh, for reporting obligation for new regulations is a very, very essential matter. So this is in short what I can tell you about this. I would need an own webcast to speak about the technology efforts we have done. Thank you very much, Astrid. Want to get to the key takeaways. And while, as you can see, our colleagues are, would have would have loved to discuss more, loved to, um, and maybe again, topic of a future webcast. I think I could probably best say that um, you know, one, this is a very complex. Action, it's action-based, what we heard, right? Um, it, there are hallmarks that you got to watch for. The key one is a tax benefit that you need to watch for. It's mandatory reporting, cross-border, could include domestic transactions. Country rules could differ, certainly do differ, and there's penalties if you don't comply. In other words, very, 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 very difficult uh, set of rules to kind of get your head around. I'm sorry to say this, but it's also something I think it's the new normal. We need to all get used to it. Transparency is the new normal. There's likely more to come. So please stay tuned, and we here at PwC would be happy to keep you informed. Uh, just in closing, um, I want to thank all of our colleagues on the on the webcast today for their great presentations. I want to thank all of you for joining our um, tax readiness webcast Again, with that, um, I just wanted to say thank you very much uh, to all of you for joining our webcast. Take care. Have a great day. We'll, we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.